You're listening to The Drag. Inside a FedEx distribution center is a high-tech, Dr. Seuss-like system that sorts incoming shipments. According to a FedEx promo video, here's what happens when a package arrives. First, it's taken on a roller coaster of conveyor belts carrying packages as quickly as 540 feet per minute. That's about six miles per hour, a good jogging speed. Then the package rushes through some tunnels with cameras to scan the package from all six sides. The cameras capture a 3D image and record the 30 serial numbers from the barcode. Each digit represents something different in the FedEx system. A computer reads the serial number and calculates where the package needs to go, and a robotic arm pushes it closer towards its delivery truck. It's just after 11.30 p.m. on Monday, March 19, 2018. Graveyard hours at the FedEx Distribution Center in Schertz, Texas, just northeast of San Antonio. A package arrives at the center. It's moving through the conveyor belts, the sorting arms, the tunnels. It looks like any other package. Until a sorting arm hits it, and it explodes. The San Antonio bomb squad arrives at the scene and a bomb tech enters the distribution center alongside an FBI agent. They examine the remains of the box and they piece together the information on the labels. The return label says the sender's name is, quote, Kelly Kilmore. But the return address on the label, it doesn't exist. Well, the street exists. It's a small Austin neighborhood of about 60 homes, but the street number doesn't. So they turn to the serial number. Each digit of the serial number refers to a specific location. It takes a few hours, but they're able to track down exactly what time the package was sent and where it was sent from. And quickly, they realize there's another package from the same center at the McKinney Falls Distribution Center in Southeast Austin. It's located right next to the Austin Bergstrom International Airport. I'm Ashley Miznazi, and you're listening to the fifth episode of Season 2 of Darkness, about the serial bomber that terrorized Austin, Texas in 2018. The investigators from the San Antonio Command Post make a phone call to the Austin FedEx Distribution Center, and the shipping manager is able to stop the package as it's heading towards the delivery truck. It's the first time investigators have their hands on an undetonated bomb from the serial bomber. And, of course, they have to handle it with care. By now, law enforcement officials have arrived at the Austin FedEx Distribution Center, right next to the Austin airport. The bomb squad clears everyone out of the facility. If the package bomb were to go off, they want to do everything to limit anyone getting hurt. They immediately set up a command post on the scene filled with supervisors, EMS, fire, and a hazmat team. Each member of the bomb squad gets into an 85-pound suit and puts on a helmet with a visor. Their hands and feet are the only parts of their body that aren't completely covered. So if something goes off, obviously those are messed up. I won't have those anymore, but I'll still be alive. That's Jay McCormick. He's on the bomb squad with the Austin Police Department. The bomb squad uses X-ray equipment to scan the package, and they can see what's inside. 
It's a pipe bomb made with a steel galvanized pipe with PVC pipe on the inside. It's filled with shrapnel and designed to detonate when the package is opened. Investigators have spent weeks putting together theories for what the serial bomber's devices looked like. And now, they can see they were right. The unexploded bomb looks just like the bomb that critically injured Hope Herrera. I think for me, it was like we, we had, at the time, an idea of everything that we found, how we could reconstruct it. But actually finding the actual device intact, exactly the way it was set up, let us kind of know that, hey, we were right there on track with what it is. They want to be careful with this device, not just because they don't want it to explode, but because they want to preserve the evidence. Here's Dan Muller, who's overseeing the investigation for the ATF. The fact that if you're shipping a bomb via FedEx, now you're talking trucks and interstate commerce, you're talking airplanes, you know, and just the worst case scenario in your mind is like, oh no, we could have planes falling from the sky because this guy is, you know, shipping bombs through the air. While the bomb squad works for six hours to disarm the device, other investigators are following the package's trail. They've tracked both this package and the one that exploded at the Shirts Distribution Center to the same FedEx store in Austin that we told you about last episode. Within 30 minutes, they've obtained the security footage of the guy who came in wearing a wig and reeking of chemicals, and they have their first look at the suspect shipping the packages. The footage shows their suspect pushing the glass door open with one hand and holding two packages in the other. He wears blue jeans and layers of multiple t-shirts. The top one is a green shirt with a white design on it. He wears a navy blue ball cap on top of a short, scruffy blonde wig. He's also wearing beige utility gloves with red palms. Gloves like this are generally cut resistant, good for gardening or construction. Definitely not the kind of gloves most people wear while running errands on a warm spring day. He walks up to the FedEx employee, a young man with dark hair and facial hair on his chin, and plops the boxes on the counter. It's almost eerie to watch him toss the boxes down so roughly, knowing what's inside. The employee weighs one package and then tosses it to the side to grab the second box. The bottom package is flat and square, a few inches thicker than a pizza box and wider than the FedEx scale. The top package isn't as wide, but it's twice as tall as the first box. You could probably fit a cake in it. The FedEx employee definitely thinks the man's behavior is strange. But it's Austin, a city that's known for being weird. But just in case, after the interaction, the FedEx employee goes outside to get a better look at the vehicle the man was driving. When FBI agent Justin Wilson watches the footage... He notices the suspect is careful to turn his face away from cameras, and he doesn't wince when the package is roughly handled. He knows that there are bombs in these packages, but he roughly drops them on the counter, seemingly with no concern that they go off. Several case agents we interviewed, including Agent Wilson, were stunned by this. And that told me either A, you didn't care, if you blew up, or B, you were very confident in your device that it was going to be, that it was not going to blow up. The FBI interviews the FedEx store employee 
who tells them in greater detail what the bomber looked like. The employee says he's in his early 20s, average height, with a pasty white face, acne, and a smell, like burnt wire. This doesn't fit the criteria of what they imagined the identified suspect to be. They had been internally painting a picture of an older suspect who had some military experience. In the surveillance video, the FedEx employee watches the man in a wig leave through the glass entrance. He takes a sharp left, walking entirely around the store to get to his truck. Peculiar. The parking lot was empty, yet he parked relatively far away to be carrying two boxes stacked high enough to reach his chin. The bomber left investigators with another clue when he shipped the packages. He made a mistake driving the truck directly in front of the store, and they got it on video. They show the FedEx employee a photo lineup of trucks, and he points to a 2002 Red Ford Ranger. The footage gives investigators a first glimpse of his face, his stature, and his vehicle. It's the first big break in the case. Officer Jay McCormick with the Austin Police Bomb Squad gets a call from the Assistant Chief of the Austin Police Department. He asks him to go check out a nail salon. One of the intercepted FedEx packages was being sent there. It's still early in the morning. The nail salon is closed, but employees are arriving to start their day. Officer McCormick and other investigators are trying to keep things under the radar. So we actually got tech medics to go up there with us just in case we found something or something happened or we hit something that we recovered. But we went out there and searched the whole place with the dog and nothing was found there. By now, the news has broken of last night's explosion at the FedEx distribution center in Shirts and this morning's near explosion in Austin. Everyone in the city is on edge. Throughout the day, the bomb squad receives at least 562 suspicious package calls from concerned citizens, but they only make it to 38 of them. Reason is because we were tied up. We had a lot of stuff going on. Our patrol guys were out there and they were asking us, what do we look for? What are, what are we looking for? And everything was similar. So can't get into specifics of it, but we would educate them. If you see this X, Y, and Z, definitely don't touch it, get away from it, call us. The patrol officers also started calling Amazon, UPS, FedEx, and the U.S. Postal Service to send them a message. If you're making deliveries, put them away from the wall with labels facing up to hopefully reduce the number of suspicious package calls and help put the city at ease. It's 2 p.m., Time for a briefing with law enforcement. It's called a case coordination call. Officers gather at the command post to receive the latest information, and there's a lot of it. Specifically, the biggest breaks in the case investigators have gone so far. The interview with a FedEx employee and make and model the suspect's car, a red Ford Ranger truck. They collected thousands of names of every person in Texas who owned that vehicle. This information was given to Agent Jordana Nesvog, the FBI civilian analyst who's been collecting evidence since the second bomb went off. From working all of, all of my years with gangs and drugs and knowing, I mean, so much of my work had, had really been contingent on following cars, knowing which cars are involved. And so I knew that's a, that's a key thing that can really lead us back to an actual person, place, and identity. 
Agent Nesvog sits in the corner of the command post in what she calls the, quote, war room, with a couple of laptops and a stack of papers. Investigators and supervisors move in and out of the room. They didn't have a way to merge the digital database with physical copies of receipts they'd obtained from various stores around town that sold items similar to the bomb parts. So Agent Nesvog has a stack of physical receipts from Fry's Electronics and a digital list of all of the owners of Red Ford Rangers in Texas. She wants to cross-reference them on the off chance a name from the receipts matched a name from her list of truck owners. You know, that was something that I made a priority because I felt like that project, if nothing else, it could eliminate some persons of interest. And heck, if it identified somebody, that was going to be, that was going to be really valuable. She picks up the first receipt and types their name into the truck database. No match. Then she does the same thing six more times. On the seventh name, she gets a hit. And I'm looking at a vehicle registration for Mark Connett that literally says 2002 Ford Ranger extended cab. You know, that was, that was like the moment. I was like, we got him. Just like that, she has the name, Mark Anthony Condit. He owns a 2002 Red Ford Ranger and he'd shopped at Fry's Electronics. He purchased parts identical to the ones used in the bombs. Finally, the pieces are falling into place. I still get goosebumps. I think it's, it was just, when you know, you know, it was kind of one of those um, instances where instinct and also just the writing in front of you, the pieces of the puzzle, the like everything that we'd been working at, like just the click of something falling into place. It's hard to describe, but it's just, it's kind of like time stands still. Before sharing it with anyone, Agent Nesvog wants to make sure she's right. The other investigators are still in their 2 p.m. briefing. She has a few moments to verify his identity. And one of the main concerns for me at that moment was, is this somebody that we've already looked at in the investigation and discarded for some reason? So, um, in, in those brief moments, you know, I pulled up his driver's license, so I had, had his photo up. And we have deconfliction uh, is, is also a major part of our job as analysts. And that's just to say that we, we want to know if other agencies are looking at the same people we're looking at so that we don't get in the way of each other or we don't end up with what they would call blue on blue or, um, you know, just interference with other people's investigations. So. We had a capability where I could look up and see if anybody had, you know, looked at his driver's license before or pulled his criminal history before. And and from what I could see, nobody had. So to me, that meant this is new information. This is a connection that hasn't already been made, but it's a major one. While Agent Nesvog has been tracking down the owner of the Ford Ranger, other investigators have been collecting evidence on the Drive Like Your Kids Live Here sign. Remember, it's a sign the bomber used to create the tripwire that injured two young men just days before. Turns out, only three of those signs had been sold in the Austin metro area in the past few months. The investigation points to Home Depot in Pflugerville, a suburb northeast of Austin. 
officials asked the Home Depot for security footage. This footage is even better than the FedEx store tape. They see the bomber going through the checkout line. This time, no wig or disguise to shield his identity. He wears a black shirt and has short black hair. He's holding the red sign in another shopping bag, and even though it's blurry, his face is visible. Putting his DL photo up there next to um, the FedEx camera footage as well as like the Home Depot footage, yeah, it really it hit it home that, that this is the one person we're looking for in this moment. The command center erupts in a flurry of action. Every investigator is asked to come into the briefing room. And when Chief Brian Manley walks in, he sees the entire case on the whiteboard. What they showed on the board was all of the links to the bomber through the evidence that was gathered, the receipts, the videos, the vehicles. And it was clear in that moment that we knew who the bomber was. The concern was we didn't know where he was. They know his name. They've seen his face. It's time to find Mark Condit. Investigators start with the Travis County District Attorney, Margaret Moore. She's interested in prosecuting the bomber on the local level so he wouldn't face federal crimes, but he would face the death penalty. But the feds are prepared to take over the case if anything starts to link the case to a terrorism charge. The next moves must happen carefully, but quickly. Investigators locate Mark Condit's address and send surveillance teams there. It's a small, baby blue, craftsman-style house at the end of a dead-end road in Pflugerville, the same Austin suburb where the bomber purchased the sign used in the tripwire explosion. It's surrounded by a chain-link fence, and a red Ford Ranger is parked in the driveway. At this point, investigators say they feel confident they have their suspect, but they have to abide by the legal process. They need to be 100% sure before they make their next move. Here's FBI agent Jason Hudson, who oversees domestic terrorism threats in Central Texas. So despite all of these coincidences, if you will, you know, it, it was, we weren't 100% confident that we, we had our, our subject, right? We didn't have a license plate, but we still have to build probable cause in order to execute an arrest uh, and execute a search warrant at this residence. State and federal officials work from there to get a search and arrest warrant on Mark Condit and his residence. The FBI puts together warrants for anything Condit had searched for online. While they're gathering information for the warrants, they've still got eyes on the bomber's house. With the truck in the driveway, they think Condit is home, but aren't sure. There are eyes on the house from every angle. There are so many different law enforcement agencies involved, especially now that the case has spread from Austin to Pflugerville. Every agent anxiously awaits their next move, including ATF Investigation Chief Dan Muller. While the agents wait for their moment to move in, they watch in disbelief as emergency officials walk up to the door. We think he's there. We're not sure. And uh, 
can't find them on any other uh, media, no digitally. We have no idea. And then, so while it's under surveillance, Pflugerville Fire Department rolls up and some EMTs come out and knock on the door. And all of a sudden, the radio chatter on our side is going nuts. What is going on here? Someone call EMS? Did they call EMS? Call the dispatch. Find out why are they there? You know, there's a little panic because we think there's a bomber in here. This type of situation, when law enforcement is closing in on a suspect, can be volatile. Officers tend to ensure emergency services are nearby in case a suspect or situation grows violent or dangerous. Typically, they'll be around the block or a few roads down, and they'll wait to be called. But at some point, we're not really sure where, there was a miscommunication. Officials at the command post are livid. Here's Agent Dan Muller again. And the command post, man, at that point, there was clipboards getting slammed, cussing, throwing things. It's like, you know, how could this have happened? Investigators aren't happy that medics have shown up at Mark Condit's house. It could blow their investigation, signal to the bomber that they're on to him, and he could flee. Or it could be worse. They could knock on the door, and things could turn deadly. They know Mark Condit is a dangerous suspect. He's killed two people and injured others, and he's shown that he has no regard for who dies as a result of his violence. The house could be booby-trapped with bombs, or the bomber could have accomplices inside the house. Basically, nobody has any idea what might happen if the medics enter Mark Condit's home. But the medics don't know this. They're just responding to a call, so they knock on the door. The door creaks open. It's a young man, a roommate of Mark Condit's, whose name was never released. He looks puzzled by the medics on the doorstep and the flashing lights outside the house. He tells the medics he lives in the house. He just moved in last fall. One of the medics explains that they're responding to an emergency call and asks if they got the address correct. Behind the unnamed roommate, there's a shout from the other room. It's another roommate named Colin Thomas. Colin, talk to us. I was wondering, uh... Who's that? Uh, we don't. We didn't. We don't know anybody who's hurt. Maybe you got the wrong address because we thought they had the wrong address. The EMS people leave, but the roommate who answered the door is still confused. He texts their other roommate, Mark Condit. Here's Agent Dan Moeller with the ATF again. The roommate who answered the door texted the bomber and said, "Hey, this was odd. Uh, EMS just came and knocked on our door, asked if everything was okay." And you can tell by the reply that he was sending was he was very interested in this. And, oh, really, why? What were they wearing? What they look like? Can you send me a picture of their car or the, the, you know, the vehicle they came in? And the roommate sends him basically a, a snapshot from the Internet of what the Pflugerville you know, Fire EMS looks like. Three years after the bombings, we spoke to Colin, the roommate who was at the house but didn't answer the door. Colin is a tall, bald, black man in his 20s. He dresses casually, like a typical tech worker in Austin. He's a fan of movies and television shows. He would often compare his roommates to characters in The Big Bang Theory. He's very confident. It's Colin. Uh, I'm the roommate of the Austin Bomber, 
And, uh, you know, it's been a crazy, crazy two years, three years now, right, going on. Colin says he felt on edge about the bombings, similar to many people in the city at the time. He found out about the story like everyone else in the news. But he didn't know that he was a part of it until the day the medic showed up at his house. After the unsettling situation with the medics, Colin tries to move forward with his day, and he remembers he has a library book to renew. He doesn't have a car, but the library is only a 20-minute walk from the house. On the way back home, he makes a quick stop at Mr. Frank's, a hot dog restaurant. Colin's a familiar face here. He has a conversation with the owner while he eats. He leaves before it gets dark, around 7.30. The walk home from the restaurant only takes five minutes. He's alone, and he's seen the news. He remembers the two victims of the tripwire bomb. He knows what's lurking out there in the dark, and he makes a mental note to look out for wires. He calls two friends to keep him company over the phone as he walks home. When he's just a block away, he notices a black Suburban parked near his house. Then, he stops walking. He's looking down the barrel of a handgun. Armed men step out of the Suburban. It's the FBI. They tell Colin to step away from his phone and lay down on the ground. Colin thinks it must be some kind of sick joke. But he complies and lays flat on the grass of someone's front yard. I thought it was a joke. Um, I was like, what the hell? I thought you got the wrong person. The FBI agents sit him in the front passenger seat of the Suburban, and they drive him to a nearby parking lot. There's an agent sitting in the driver's seat and one behind Colin for extra security. They ask him to sign a waiver, and they take his phone. He won't see it again for another 12 hours. In handcuffs, he's asked to draw a map of the house. And I'm like, oh my God, my roommate's in there. Like, what's your roommate's name? I told him this and asked me, what's Mark's name? Okay, I told him Mark. Colin tells them his roommate, Mark Condit, is not home and is driving his dad's truck, a Nissan Pathfinder. Then, he's taken to a police station in downtown Austin where he's interrogated and held in police custody. Six months before the bombings, the three roommates moved into the house in Pflugerville, owned by Condit's father. Condit and his dad had spent the summer before the roommates moved in fixing up the house. It's a three-bedroom house, and with Condit's dad being the landlord, it made sense that Condit had the biggest room. The three young men weren't close friends, but they eventually found a routine as roommates. They liked to sit on the living room couch and play video games. They talked about anime, and they shared meals and snacks at times. Typical roommate stuff. Condit wasn't hard to live with, but Colin noticed he had some quirks. He was very sarcastic. He was very, um, very, he thought he had all the answers. He had a very arrogant personality. Colin also says Condit always left his bedroom door locked. Colin never really wondered why. He just assumed Condit wanted privacy. Yeah, you give people the benefit of the doubt. So I'm like, okay, maybe he's just weird, but Austin's a weird town anyway, I guess. So I kind of assumed, okay, whatever. Their work schedules also kept them busy, so they weren't always home at the same time. Condit worked during the day, and Colin worked part-time shifts late into the evening. 
Colin told us Condit wasn't home much in February, a month before the bombings. When Condit was at home, he would often fall asleep on the couch. Colin and their other roommate were concerned for Condit. It seemed like he was going through something. So he, uh, we did reach out. I said, hey, how you doing? You all right? And he's like, yeah, I'm fine. He didn't really like, he wasn't open about what he was really going through, but you can kind of tell something was like he wasn't feeling all that well about himself. A month later in March, Condit was sitting on the living room couch with his other roommate when Colin walked in. The three young men started talking about the bombing that killed Stefan House just miles away from their home. Everyone in Austin had heard about it. I say again, like, I don't know who's doing it. And he's like, he's like, oh, how do we know it's not you? Around the same time Colin Thomas is detained by the FBI on March 20th, officials respond to a call from a Goodwill store in South Austin, not far from where Mark Condit was spotted on security footage dropping off the FedEx packages. Hundreds of officials arrive at the scene, where a Goodwill employee had been unloading donation boxes when he came across an object he didn't recognize. He picked it up, unsure what it was, and then it detonated. Fear spreads across Austin once again. The situation feels chaotic. First, the FedEx explosion and shirts. Then, the diffused bomb at the FedEx in Austin. And now, a bomb at a Goodwill donation box? Austinites begin to feel like nowhere is safe. Officials determine the detonation at Goodwill doesn't have anything to do with the serial bombings. The object that exploded wasn't even a bomb. It was a military training device. The employee had been rushed to the hospital because he'd nearly cut off his hand. He told officials it was an accident. They still aren't sure how the device ended up in the donation box in the first place but it had nothing to do with the bombings taking place across the city. Meanwhile, officials have found more evidence tying Mark Condit to the bombings. They have surveillance footage of the bomber driving his father's Nissan Pathfinder on Galindo Street, where a bomb injured Hope Herrera. And they've got his cell phone number. They're tracking his phone, waiting for it to ping a cell tower, which might signal where he is. It's not an exact science, but it's a start. FBI agent Jason Hudson says tracking the phone had its limits. One of the challenges we had is that his cell phone was off and he purposely turned off his cell phone. So we didn't have a whole lot of leads to actually identify where he was. The hope was that he would return home. After the EMS tip-off, Condit doesn't come home that night. Unbeknownst to investigators at the time, Condit spends that afternoon working for a garage repair company. He then goes to a public library in Round Rock. He searches on the internet for several hours. Since his roommate texted him about the medics showing up, he has an idea investigators are on to him. We don't know what Condit was searching in the library. Investigators won't tell us. But it's likely he was looking to see if they knew his identity. Investigators stay posted at his house throughout the night in case he decides to come back. APD is crafting a message to all state and local law enforcement about what to do if the vehicle is spotted. They're walking a fine line between finding the bomber and protecting the safety of the public. Chief Manley has a decision to make. This was the moment when I had to make, uh, for my role, the most critical decision in the entire investigation, 
And that was when my public information officer came up to me and told me that, you know, asked me basically, well, chief, you now know who the bomber is. You have his picture and we have a warrant for his arrest. Are we going to put this out to the public? And we had to have some discussions about that because had the bomber struck and injured someone else, well, we had information on who they were that we had not disclosed. There would have been a tremendous amount of controversy over that. However, we know what happened in the Boston bombings at the Marathon, that as soon as those pictures went public and the identity of the bombers went public, they went on a rampage. And so that's what you get paid for is making those tough decisions. And I looked at it. It was late at night. Nobody was going to be watching the media anymore that night. So I made the decision that we were not going to release it that night. And we were going to hold on to that. Many of the investigators start to go home. Very few people are left in the command center during those dark hours stretching into the early morning. But Chief Manley finds himself unable to leave. He can't stop thinking about closing in on Mark Condit. And there's this this sense of success and that you've gotten this far in the investigation, but this concern because you know what this person is capable of and you don't know if they're out there in that very moment planting more bombs that innocent victims may come across the next day. He worries about the next morning, how he knows he will be sending officers and agents directly into harm's way. That's when he notices commotion again in the command center, similar to when they identified Mark Condit earlier. Just past 1 a.m., the bomber turned on his cell phone. It pinged a cell phone tower, so they had his location. And so it had come to light that the bomber was in a parking lot, in a hotel, in Round Rock, Texas, just north of Austin, and we needed to get there fast. Next, on season two of Darkness. I just had this gut feeling, and I'm like, he knows the game's up. He's sitting there making his final final plans. Air to ground, he's on the move. Season two of Darkness is reported, hosted, written, and directed by me, Ashley Miznazi. This podcast is presented by The Drag, a student-run audio production house at the University of Texas at Austin's Moody College of Communication. Katie penchik outka and Robert Quigley are the executive producers. This podcast was also reported and written by Kenny Jones. The editor is Katie penchik outka The associate producers are Austin Cheatham, Libby Cohen, Alexandra Curry-Buckner, Cecilia Garzella, Gregory Gonzalez, Anastasia Goodwin, Jay Kerman, Jackie Ibarra, Marian Navarro, Ileana Rowland, Sarah Schleed, Aiden Snazdell and Harrison Young. Their artwork was created by Helen Holsey. Christian McDonald is the drag's technical director. A huge thank you to Leslie Schrock for all of her support and guidance. I also want to thank Jay Bernhardt, Kathleen McElroy, Rachel Davis-Mercy, Allison Dawson, Kathleen Mabley, Emily Quigley, Jay Whitman, Eric Tang, Robert Vilwalk, and Ryan Outka. Special thanks to Grace Spees, Marcus Crum, Raul Garcia, Dylan Lee, Jennifer Robbins, Tasha Turner, Amanda Cisneros, Jenny Nelson Gray, and Tiffany Ma. 
The Drag is a nonprofit educational organization that is made possible by donors like you. Please support our work by going to thedragaudio.com/donate. Every dollar goes directly to producing more content like this while giving students an amazing educational experience. Thank you.